0: Hey, surprisingly awesome listeners. This is Rachel Ward, and I'm making a surprise visit during our hiatus to introduce you to one of my colleagues. Hi, Pat. Where am I? You are in the surprisingly awesome feed, which is an unusual place for you to be. Yes. Who are you again?
1: I'm Pat Walters.
0: What do you What do you do around here? And
1: uh, and I'm hosting a show called Undone, which is a show where we go back to news events that happened a while ago and uncover surprising and interesting things that have happened since then.
0: And the reason we have you here in the surprisingly awesome feed is it's
1: because it's surprisingly awesome.
0: Uh, Hey, I decide what's surprisingly (laughs) awesome and what's not.
1: Who made you grand arbiter of what is surprisingly awesome?
0: Alex Bloomberg. That's true. (laughs) But I think your show is very relevant to our listeners because you do have surprises in your show. Yes. And your show is full of killer facts.
1: We've got some facts.
0: So your show like goes back into history and it plucks out an event and it reveals this like unknown history surrounding that event, right?
1: Yeah. We go back to these old things and kind of bring them back to life. But then we also connect them to now. In some ways, like when the old news event happens, it's actually like the beginning of this much more interesting and rich and surprising story. And that's what we tell in the podcast.
0: And so we've got an episode we're going to send part of this episode down the feed for our listeners. Yes. Could, they can get a taste, see if this is a show that they want to commit to. Yes. But I can say that this story has everything. This story's got it all. It has a raging inferno. Yep. It has racial violence. Mm-hmm. It has struggle for civil rights. hmm And it has disco music.
1: Yep. Also has baseball. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay, so this episode is about disco.
1: It's about disco, yeah.
0: And I understand that you have prepared a quiz for me.
1: Yeah, this is a quiz that will be a test of uh, Rachel's knowledge of disco and part of the killer facts that you will hear in this episode. So let's just see.
0: I know that in the long term, I'm going to be smarter after taking this quiz, so I'm looking forward to that. But in the short term, I'm dreading revealing how little I know about this
1: you're having all the feelings that one would have about a quiz. <laughs> Welcome back to school. Disco cool, Yeah. Okay. So uh, this is a very short quiz. Okay. So your, experiences, your experience of like the pain of not knowing stuff will be short-lived. Okay. Okay. So question number one, what is the defining musical characteristic of disco music? What is the thing that sets disco music apart from all the other music?
0: I already feel in the woods because I like honestly can't name a ton of disco songs.
1: Uh, can you name one disco song?
0: S- is oh, Staying Alive... listening to this. Are- yes.
1: <laughs> yes, there you go. She
0: has redeemed herself. Okay, <laughs> so based on Staying Alive as our example, I would say the defining characteristic of disco is like m- men singing in falsetto. <laughs>
1: yeah. It's not the defining characteristic. There are lots of other kinds of music where men sing in falsetto. It's true. So the defining characteristic is the beat. Like if you think about Staying Alive... It's that it's that four on the floor beat that in staying alive, they use the beat to teach people how to do CPR because it's the right tempo for k- keeping someone alive or bringing someone back to life. <laughs> And that wasn't really a beat that was used in popular music before disco happened, which was surprising to me. Um, and we actually talked to uh, a producer who was one of the first people to make a disco song, this guy named Giorgio Moroder. And he told us that he had thought about using this beat earlier before disco, but always thought that it was too boring, too simple. <laughs> so just like never tried it out. was <laughs> like no one will like that. Uh, and now it's this iconic, this iconic beat. Yeah. Okay, question number two. What is the last disco song to win a Grammy Award?
0: Um, well, (laughs) given that I previously only was able to come up with one disco song.
1: Exactly. I will give you a hint. There's like a thematic connection between the one disco song that you do know. "Staying Alive. And this one disco song that won a Grammy Award.
0: Is it, I Will Survive? Yes, it is! (laughs) She did it!
1: Okay, question number three on the disco quiz. What do La Freak, Like a Virgin, and Get Lucky all have in common? Sub question to question number three. Do you know what those things are? Okay,
0: I know La Freak. That's like, La Freak, say chic.
1: Yeah, yeah, there you go.
0: And then what was the second one?
1: Like a Virgin. Yes. Okay. And And Get Lucky.
0: Yeah. That's
1: great. We should have had you. I know all the lyrics. This is is perfect. (laughs) So, what do they all have in common?
0: I don't know who sings the freak
1: it's a band called chic
0: well having no visual on chic but knowing a little bit about madonna and a little bit about daft punk and pharrell i'm gonna say that the thing they have in common is hats
1: (laughs) hats interesting uh so do you want the answer
0: yes
1: (laughs) all three of those songs are produced by the same person his name is niall rogers
0: Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: Who was the front man of Chic and then went on after Disco to become a very successful, famous music producer, powerhouse guy. Well. I think you did great. You got off to a rocky
0: start. I got a flu shot this morning and I would say that the flu shot hurt more. And I feel great now.
1: Well, imagine how good you'd feel if you just got to listen to a podcast that gave you all of those surprising facts, and you didn't even have to try.
0: Yeah, no, I get you. uh, That feels like a really good place to wrap it up and do the plug. Uh, So listeners, stay with us. We're going to play you part of the very first episode of Undone, the new show from Gimlet. It's called Disco Demolition Night.
1: From Gimlet Media, I'm Pat Walters, and this is Undone. Undone is a show about how big news stories we thought were over, often were the beginning of something else. We'll go back to one of these stories each episode and tell you about the surprising things that happened when everybody stopped looking. This is our first episode, and it starts on a hot summer night in Chicago, Illinois, July 12th, 1979. It's a makeup game. It rained earlier
0: in the year, and we lost a game with Detroit. So this is a makeup game. It's a four-game We're at
1: Comiskey now. Park on the south side of Chicago, and the White Sox are playing a doubleheader against the Detroit Tigers. The place was packed. They completely sold out the stadium, and there were another twenty thousand people wandering around in the street trying to get in. There were that many people who couldn't even get in. Yeah, yeah. There were ever, they were were climbing the drain pipes. This is Paul Natkin. He was there that night. But he wasn't there for the baseball game. Nobody was really there for the baseball game. They were there for this promotion that was being put on by a big rock radio station in town called The Loop. If you brought a disco record, you got in for 98 cents. Now, the thing you have to understand is disco was everywhere that summer. The station said, bring your Anita Ward, your sister Sledge, your Donna Summer, Bring all the disco music you can find so that we can destroy it.
0: Disco sucks! Disco sucks!
1: This was supposed to be a wacky stunt, but it ended up becoming something so much bigger than that. It became this huge thing. Front page of the Sun-Times, front page of the Tribune. It made worldwide news. It's a trivial pursuit question. This week, we're going back to this night where 50,000 people showed up to a baseball game in Chicago to rage against disco music. We've spent the past several months sifting through the craziness of that night, trying to make sense of what happened. We found out a lot. And along the way, we came across a guy named Vince Lawrence, an usher at the game, whose story shows how this night connects to so much of the music we listen to today. To get things going, here's Vince, the usher.
2: Well, when I got there, you know,
1: we set up at the gates as usual, and there were lines around the block. And there's... Vince was 15 that summer, and he'd gotten a job with this company that provided ushers to big venues in Chicago.
2: Take a guy to his seat, watch the concert.
1: Not a bad job. He'd
2: gotten to see lots of shows. ABBA, Michael Jackson, Kiss, um, the Funk Fest at Soldier Field. I saw the Rolling Stones
1: with this um, incredible guy, Prince, opening for him. And this would have been amazing for any kid, but it was especially so for Vince, because he decided recently that he was going to be a musician. It had happened when his dad's friend took him to see this funk artist named Captain Sky, whose band had a synthesizer in it. And at that point, uh, that's what I was going to do. I was going to be the synthesizer guy. Which was a pretty new thing at the time. And that's why he took this usher job, to save money to buy his first synthesizer. So, on this night, it's not a concert, it's a baseball game. Or, it was supposed to be anyway. Vince is
2: out at the front gate. Taking tickets, watching records pile up at the gate. And I had strict intention of keeping disco records that I
1: thought were good that I didn't have. (laughs) So Vince is a disco fan, taking tickets at an anti-disco event. Which sounds like it'd be a real bummer. But Vince says he was actually really excited to be working that night. Because the DJ hosting the promotion was someone that he liked. I knew about Steve Dahl and Teenage Radiation, his band. And I thought that they were pretty cool. Steve Dahl is the DJ at The Loop, the big rock radio station that was putting on this promotion at the baseball game. And Vince says he had this band that did parodies of disco songs. My name is Tony. Do you care to
0: dance? No? Hey, calm down. Let me get you another pina colada.
2: He did this cover of Do You Think I'm Sexy by Rod Stewart. Which Vince noticed had some
1: synthesizer in it. So I was like, wow, you know, he's cool. He's he's a futurist just like me. But unlike Vince, Steve Dahl had been on this anti-disco crusade that summer. Making fun of disco on his radio show, doing public appearances where he'd smash disco records over his head... And that night at the baseball game, his plan was to blow up all the disco records people brought to the stadium. But as Vince was sifting through these records as he was collecting them at the gate, he noticed something strange. A lot of them weren't actually disco records. Well, there's Marvin Gaye records and Stevie Wonder, Songs
2: in the Key of Life, records that were black records. And I was like, you can't get in. To people who have tickets, because I'm like, this record isn't a disco record. You have to have a disco record to get in for a dollar.
1: But his boss came over and said no. He says, look, if they bring a record, if it's in that area, you got to let them in. Which Vin says he thought was weird, but at the time, he really didn't think that much of it. So, the first game starts. It's a doubleheader, so there's two games. And that first one is pretty uneventful. Diane White, another person who was in the crowd that night.
3: I I wouldn't say it was like a mood of riotousness during, you know, the game. But after
1: that first game ended, things changed. This big door opened in center field and the Jeep rolled out. That's Paul Natkin again.
3: Like a World War II Jeep with the top down, you know, where they had the canvas tops.
1: And Steve Dahl, the anti-disco DJ, was standing in the back shouting into a megaphone.
3: Hey,
2: it's because of you that this is happening tonight, okay, not because of us. We're merely a
0: vehicle for your thoughts. Disco sucks.
3: Disco sucks. He was wearing his ROTC disco jacket sucks. and um, Hawaiian shirt. With the Army
1: helmet. People are screaming and they're going nuts. And Steve Dahl pulls the Jeep up next to a dumpster. Give it. Any sense of how many were in there? It was a big dumpster and it was full.
0: Well, listen, we took all the disco records that you brought tonight, we got them in a giant box. And we're going to blow them up real good.
1: And this was the big moment that all those people had come to see that night.
3: You We're going to count the three and go boom. One, two, three, boom! All of a sudden, there's like stuff shooting up in the air. Crowd goes out of their minds.
2: I was working the boxes along the third baseline. We were very quickly overrun because there just weren't enough of
1: us.
3: They're they're getting out of their seats and they're jumping onto the field. Thousands
1: of people storming the field. And at first, it all looks pretty fun. You see kids chasing each other around, sliding in the grass, climbing on each other's shoulders. I talked to this newspaper reporter named Dave Hoekstra, who was there, who told me the owner was out on the field. And he was old, and he had a peg leg, and there's, there's stories he had about- a peg he, leg? Up, he Yeah, yeah, he lost his leg in the war. And he kept getting stuck in the mud. The whole thing is like this zany, real-life slapstick routine, until all of a sudden, it's just not. People started ripping up the bases, the batting cages. All hell broke loose. All of a sudden you see a cloud of smoke
3: right what happened was that uh they band stormed the field and they set a bonfire in center field, and, they also and people are dancing around it
2: yelling disco socks there's a section behind the bullpen where some
1: people lit the um seats on fire the and seats so in the stands somebody's... on fire yeah
2: yeah i was standing on the field with our uh, camera crew shooting this and it was one of the most horrifying sights you can imagine steve Dahl, the the disc jockey was nowhere to be found uh...
0: the game delayed over two hours. Jim. Yes, what's the, what's the current situation?
3: They just canceled the second game.
2: the chief usher came to me and says, hey, they're telling us that we have to go home. They're calling the police to protect the park.
0: Police have actually set up barricades now to keep people out of the area of the stadium. Rosemarie Gully is there with a live report.
1: So at this point, Vince is just trying to get out of there. And on my way to the
2: locker room, there were just angry people running up to me, getting in my face, saying, Disco sucks, disco sucks. And
1: I remember saying, Hey, look at my shirt. He was wearing a t-shirt with the logo of the loop, the rock station that had put on the event that night. And I had to show him, like, hey,
2: I'm not I'm hey, I'm I'm not, you know, a bad person. Look at my shirt. Feeling like um They thought I was disco. And a kid came up to me and took a 12-inch disc and broke it right in my face. It was like a Marvin Gaye 12-inch or something like that. And I didn't understand it till much later that, you know, that was just hate. And that um, they were directing it at me because I was black and the record was black. I didn't get that at that time.
1: By the end of the night, 39 people had been arrested. The cops even had to bring in horses. And this became a huge news story. And the pictures of it that went all around the world are disturbing. You see a crowd of thousands of white kids out on this field, smashing and burning records by primarily black artists. And to a lot of people who saw those images in the paper and watched them on television the next day, this didn't look like a wacky radio stunt.
3: It looked really, it looked a little scary to me,
1: actually. It looked really frightening. This is Renee Graham. She's a columnist for the Boston Globe who writes about music and culture. But when all this happened, she was a teenager.
3: What it reminded me of even then was I remember seeing films of these sort of white citizens' councils in the 50s who disliked rock and roll. Now, what they really disliked is the fact that this was a music that was bringing together blacks and whites. Renee says the backlash against disco seemed similar. This wasn't just, oh, we don't like this music. This, was, this wasn't just that. This was, we don't like these people who listen to this music.
1: And to understand that, you really have to go back to the roots of disco, to June of 1969 in New York City. Renee says it all started in the wake of the riot at the Stonewall Inn. When the cops started scaling back their raids on gay bars in the city.
3: It wasn't like the old days where the windows were blacked out and there was no name on the door and you had to know where it was, suddenly places were quite open. You know, I can remember going to one of the big, big clubs in the 70s downtown. I was probably, I don't know, 16 years old, so I really had no business being there anyway. And I wasn't and I wasn't out. So going to those those clubs was I felt like I had I'd come home. As a gay
1: woman of color, these clubs became a safe place for Renee and for lots of people. They called the clubs discos because everybody was dancing to records instead of a band. And at first, they were dancing to all different kinds of music, funk, soul, r and But then in the early 1970s, a new style of music started coming out. This is Love Train. Came out in 1972 by a band called the OJs. It's one of the first disco songs. And Renee says she remembers hearing disco music and thinking... It was clearly
3: different from all the R&B and soul I'd been listening to up to that point. It
1: had some elements of that other music.
3: You know, the bulk of the artists who were out there got their start singing in church. So these were church-trained voices. Big gospel-trained, you know, black voices. But it also pulled in all this other stuff. Salsa, which was really big in New York in the 1970s put Behind it, usually, you know, an orchestra. A lot of percussion. With the drums, it's like that hissing sound that. St- 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 but the most defining element, the thing
1: that was new and really set disco apart from the things before it, was the beat. You
3: have to have, say, 120 beats per minute. It was just a lot faster than music before that. It was sort of like R&B, but on steroids. They called it four on the floor,
1: which just means that the music was written in 4-4 four, four time, four beats per measure, and where the drummer
3: would hit the bass drum on every single downbeat. You know, there was something about the propulsion of that sound that was really intoxicating. This beat was brand new, even though it's such a simple idea. And the thing about this beat is that it just made you dance. That was the thing different from a lot of the other music. You could sing along to other things, you could dance, but disco was built to be danced to.
1: And because of that, disco took over the gay dance clubs that were flourishing in New York and other big cities across the country, like San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago. And as it spread, the music got woven together with the movement for gay rights, for openness, for inclusivity. The music became the culture, And by the mid-70s, disco had made it out of the gay clubs and into the homes of teenagers like Vince, the usher we talked to before. There was disco on the radio and disco in my house. This is Ring My Bell by Anita Ward, and it would later become one of Vince's favorite songs. The reason I remember that record
2: so much at that time was because it had that one syndrome sound. And I learned how to make that sound at Captain Sky's
1: rehearsals. Through 73, 74, and 75,
3: the scene kept growing, but it didn't quite go mainstream. If you wanted to hear disco, you were listening to uh, the black radio stations. Nobody else was playing it. And then in 1977... Okay. Saturday Night Fever comes out, and disco is everywhere. Everyone was wearing polyester white suits, and the Bee Gees were all you heard. Nothing against the Bee Gees. Like, more and more Americans are getting more and more into the disco scene. It was this trendy thing, and suddenly people started flooding into discos who had never gone to discos this before. This is the scene outside a New York disco called Studio 54. It was almost like musical gentrification, if you will, Um, kind of pushing, you know, the pioneers and the originators out of the way and letting in all these new people who then decide it's their thing and that they created it. And not only was everybody listening to disco music,
1: everybody seemed to be making it, too. This is the Rolling Stones. Rod Stewart had a disco song. By the spring of 1979, there were 20,000 disco clubs in America. Nearly half the Grammy Awards that year went to disco music and dozens of huge mainstream radio stations, stations that previously played rock music, switched formats to play disco 24 hours a day. So this is what's happening in 1979. And just a couple months later, The Loop and Steve Dahl hold their big event at Comiskey Park to destroy disco records. And Renee says that night's impact wasn't just about how scary it looked to her on TV. It was bigger than that.
3: Well, I mean, you know, after that, disco kind of becomes a four-letter word. People weren't getting played. People weren't getting booked. The records weren't selling as well. Renee says it happened shockingly fast.
1: In 1979, disco was everywhere. And by late 1980... Disco dies. That night at the baseball game became known as Disco Demolition Night. And over the years, a lot of people have said it's the night... Disco died.
3: It's like pulling the rug out from under you. You have to kind of rebalance. Okay, what are we going to do now? How do I stay afloat?
1: This is Janice Marie Johnson, and she had this band called Taste of Honey that had a big disco hit.
3: Boogie, oogie, oogie. In
1: 1978, the song had gone to number one on the pop, R&B, and disco charts. Sold two million copies. That summer, they were playing stadiums.
3: 80,000 people, outdoor concert, Chicago, singing my song.
1: They won a Grammy Award for Best New Artist. 1978 was a great year for them.
0: And then, overnight, everything changed. Hey guys, Rachel Ward, I'm signing off here. But if you want to hear what happens next, subscribe to Undone. You can find it at gimletmedia.com fallseason.